Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Well, it's been funny, and as you all know, that's the reason it's hard to write jokes about it because politicians are providing the punchlines themselves. It doesn't really give you much room to manoeuvre. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve every aspect of your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a comedian and political commentator who takes pride in breaking the norm. He is a self-proclaimed right-leaning comedian whose work is side-splittingly funny and politically poignant. He has been featured on shows like Live at the Apollo, The Mash Report, Question Time and The Daily Politics, just to name a few. His show, What Most People Think, is a punchy and political podcast that gets to the bottom of what he feels the average person thinks about key political issues and includes interviews with comedians, politicians and journalists. He's one of the few British comedians, save for Boris Johnson, openly mixing conservatism with comedy. Jeff Norcott, welcome to the Humorology podcast. It's great to be here. I mean, it's been certainly with politics over the last year. Well, yeah, I was going to say that must be quite tricky for you because, I mean, it's been a whirlwind. Mm. So what is your opinion of what's happened in this recent whirlwind? Well, I mean, I've always had, you know, digs at both sides you know, of the political dividing line, because I think people wouldn't take you seriously or you'd have no credibility as a comic if you didn't. And, you know, the Tories over the last year in particular have been providing all the best setups, really. I mean, when you, when you talk about when you have literally someone says that Boris Johnson was ambushed by cake, you just think, well, there's nothing. I mean, people often say, well, it must be a great time for satirists. But actually, I think that this period now where we're sort of entering into what people call the boring period, we've got two very technocratic figures like Starmer and Sunak sort of trying to outbland each other, really. I mean, it's like, it's sort of like, as I said this on Twitter, but it's sort of like a whole series of MasterChef where you can only use dry cereal and poultry. You know, there's nothing, it's just like, well, 
I, yeah, I, I see your flavorless risotto and I, I raise you, I raise you some porridge. It, I mean, it really is. I mean, but that to me, that's funny to me. I can get my teeth back into that. I think the fact that, that Starmer is sort of, it seems like a mortgage salesman that suddenly decided he wants to run one of the biggest countries in the world. All that is that to me, that stuff's funny. Yeah. Do you think that, um, we were in a sense spoilt with characters before and uh, probably what we do need is a little bit of dullness or do you do you think mm. politics can ever be the same again do you think you have to be um charismatic to do it now yeah i'm not so sure i mean you get this sort of view in particularly sort of online liberal circles where they're like you know, we need the grown-ups back in charge, and that in that in itself is a funny phrase to me because you you don't really get to decide yourself whether or not you're one of the grown-ups. That's something that the electorate will sort of decide for you. But but I, I don't know. I think that I don't see why it's beyond comprehension that you could have a bit of charisma and competence. What what we seem to come down to is the idea that it's either. Uh, an obviously unreliable and dishonest person like Boris Johnson, or it's a deeply tedious uh, uh, but but trustworthy person like Starmer. I would just, you know, I think that politically he he can be deceitful in his own way. I don't think he's a deceitful person. I'd, I'd still like to believe that you could combine both things. You know, it almost feels like overcorrecting. If so, like you know, if a woman's in a relationship with a guy that's an absolute wrong one. And then the next bloke she dates will be the most boring guy you've ever met in your life. You think, well, you know, you could have you could have sort of split the difference a little bit. So who do you think in the past has managed to uh, to actually do that balance between being competent and charismatic? I think Blair, obviously, um, I think Cameron did as well to a point. It's, It's sort of forgotten in the mix with Cameron that he was. His unpopularity never, I mean, I know it's a negative way of measuring it, but it never got that high. You know, even when he left office, people didn't dislike Cameron because he was able to communicate. He's quite uh, convincing in a way. I think Thatcher to to a, a different degree. Harold Wilson as well, you know, had his own form of charisma. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily an either or, but, but that's the way it's currently being portrayed. It almost like, it's almost like medicine. We have to have the boring guy now because of all the fun that we had with Boris. I'm not sure we did. I, I mean, I'm, I'll take issue with the idea that Boris was as, as fun as people said. I don't, I don't think he was particularly humorous or witty at the dispatch box, but, but that is the dichotomy as it's been presented now. Do you think that's ultimately done damage to the Conservative brand that, that you know, you had Boris Johnson who was writ large across it for a while? Mm. Do you think that ultimately that that will backfire? Uh, I think that, I mean, he had obvious appeal in some places as evidenced by the fact that even though it seemed like him losing his job was the obvious thing, their polling slump since then has never recovered. I think probably you get your kind of centre-right Lib Dem types that once in the past might have voted for Cameron maybe, but but Boris was a, a step too far for them. And then you throw in the comp- – I think the competence stuff is as important as anything. So, you know, for Middle England, you can talk all you like about Boris's dishonesty, party gate, pincher gate, all the gates. Um, but the truth was, was that for a while they had somebody in charge in Liz Trust who um, – who made their mortgage get more expensive or certainly contributed to the speed at which it got more expensive. And really, if we're honest, that is 
that's that's the thing that really gets voters uh, sort of changing allegiances. Yeah, and and do you think that that those changing allegiances, the shift has already happened? Have people made their mind up, or do you think that um, boring Rishi, as you um, paint him, will mm. will be able to drag them back? You know, once upon a time, I remember in 1992 when uh, Black Wednesday and and Britain came out of the exchange European exchange rate mechanism, which eventually proved to be a good thing, I think. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. The voters didn't forget that for a long time. And I would normally say that what happened last year wouldn't be easily forgot. But I do think we're living in a sort of state of social media induced temporary amnesia, whereby the ch- I think it could be once upon a time that would have meant there was absolutely zero chance you could win an election. I don't know now. The you know twenty points Labour are generally ahead on on average. I, 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 if I had to bet on it now, I'd bet I'd bet on a fifty to to eighty seat Labour majority. I don't think it's going to be as big as some people are saying, but I can't see anything other than a Labour win. Well, I don't know. I'm confused as anyone at the moment. Yeah. Politics seems to be able to swing violently from one. When I think, because you know, nobody was expecting an 80 seat majority for Boris Johnson at the time, mm. were they? Uh, yeah, but anyway, the Tories probably are wishing that they could do another Brexit at this point. They just, if we could Brexit again, uh, you know, a sort of a sort of sequel because that election it was a very easy sort of sell, wasn't it? it goes, yeah, this thing that probably realistically once the vote happened that you had to do in some form, right? You could argue about how how hard or how how mild the Brexit was. But the point where Labour, I mean, and this was interesting, I was on Mash Report at the time and I was doing a bit about Labour's Brexit position. And I was I was getting to the point of making a joke about it, which was, but first I had to say what Labour's position was, which was that they would renegotiate the Brexit deal. Uh, they would put it to a referendum for the British people, which they would then campaign against. And before I did the joke, everyone was laughing because it was just so stupid and ridiculous. It was, you know, the product of a, a, a committee. But you sort of think, well, they're, they're just it's not a position... Uh, at all so 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 yeah i mean sometimes when it comes to politics humor is um you know in, in cases like that sometimes it's literally a case of restating what happened so we're in order to brexit again britain will have to leave britain won't it i mean that could happen too i mean there's you know wales could leave britain scotland could leave britain that we might you know brexit is now a brand it's like a franchise like the fast and the furious <laughs> oh god we're gonna get 13 of them Maybe. Oh, dear. Um, you grew up in southwest London, actually. We, we both grew up in southwest London on, on a, mm. a state uh, where I believe uh, from your excellent book, uh, they filmed the chase scenes for the bill. Um, and your dad was a proud union man and your mother, by mm. all accounts, was a, a formidable matriarch. Um, was humour actually valued in your family? Well, I think... And this is, I mean, the middle class people have a different version of humour. But I think that if humour, if you define it as a coping mechanism, um, a sort of a smile in the face of chaos, I think that the the, the more difficult your life is, I think the more important humour uh, becomes. I certainly think in South London, you'll know this, there's a way of talking that every region has their own kind of humour uh, sort of specialities and there, there's a sort of an exasperation uh, uh, there is a I mean banter is such a horribly overused word but 
but there's a there's a particular way that 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 people speak to each other in South London and and yeah I mean you, you mentioned my mum there I mean my dad used to do public speaking as a trade union man but actually and people always presumed the humour would come from him but my mum was inherently funny as, as a person you know she was very she was very charismatic woman but she was also quite unreasonable in some ways and um you know she was very sniffy judgmental you know um and 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 when we moved to the council estate it was it was all it was after the divorce that my mum uh my mum and my dad had but we were living quite a middle class life at that point and and the standard thing that should have happened was being that my mum sort of took him for the house but she wanted to she didn't really want him to give her anything so she left him with the house and 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 went to a council estate which is the absolute opposite of the divorce mantra of the 80s which was take him for everything he's got and hers was leave him with everything and live in a two-bedroom council flat. <laughs> I mean, it was it would be, but I have to admire her for it because her thing was, you know, maybe this is why I believed in Brexit. Was sometimes you've got to exit a partnership, and even if in the short to medium, so I can hear the remainder switching off now. But but <laughs> the, the but the independence has a value, you know, and 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 um, and and certainly that was the way that she saw it. But but it was undeniably possibly like Brexit and an eccentric decision. Well, an eccentric decision that has consequences for, you know, I mean, I, I heard Jacob Rees-Mogg say that it, it, it uh, in 40 years time, we'll be laughing about it and saying what a wonderful thing it was. Do you, do you believe that as well? Do you believe that we should put that much people through that much pain in order to come out the other end just for what you describe as independence well i feel like the remainder you has come out a little bit here um, oh, no. I, I, no but i'm also here to I, you know this is a thing about humor so i i want to see yeah. the humor side of it no i mean like so this is sometimes what i cover in the the podcast is is that the perception was indeed that Jacob Rees-Mogg has said we won't I mean the way it was portrayed was that he said we won't see a single benefit for 50 years what he actually said was the benefit will become apparent as our new trading relationship evolves across 50 years but one thing I'll give credit to is left-wing online movement is very good at, at pulling quotes out of uh, out of context and it's not it's not you know for me to but I mean trust me there isn't much in me that really wants to launch an impassioned defense of Jacob Rees-Mogg but what I do <laughs> you know I've sort of you know, become particularly political in a time of social media. And what I, I do object to is the way that sometimes things get pulled out of, of of context. You know, there's a popular way of understanding stuff. I mean, personally, when it comes to Jacob Rees-Mogg, I, I think that there was a time on the back benches when he was, um, you thought, well, he represents a part of England. I mean, I don't know if there's many people like him, but I've met eccentrics like him at church. You know, uh, uh, there are people like him in Britain. The, po- the point where he was part of the cabinet, you sort of thought he's lost, he's gone mainstream. You know, eccentric contributions from the back bench are very different from a guy like that having control over how the country's run on a day-to-day basis. And and often with Reese Mogg, it just seemed to become like a, a, a kind of parlour game for him of, can I defend Boris Johnson again? You know, oh, well, no, actually, I think you'll find, no, well, the thing is, no, he never said, and he go, all right, mate, you know, I know that this would have been great fun at whatever weird boarding school you went to, but this is, this is real life now. So, um, so, I mean, I come at things, it's a strange thing is where, you know, on a subject like Brexit, like the sort of superficially, he and I wanted the same outcome, but I find myself agreeing on one thing with somebody that I have literally nothing in common with in, in, in any other sense. 
it's really interesting because you, we, we're talking about Jacob Rees-Mogg and I, the next mm. thing I was going to talk about was schools. Um, and I suddenly went, well, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, uh, Boris Johnson, mm. their schools. And we were talking about charis- charisma and confidence. Mm. And now, I, I'm pretty certain that nobody who went to your school or my school um, became prime minister. And yet 20 people who went to Eton became prime minister. Uh, how? I, I, I'd, I'd stop. Somebody who went to my school did become prime minister. No I mean, way. Genuinely. Genuinely. I mean, oh. it, it, in many ways, John Major. So, and it, you know, it was, um, I went to a comprehensive school in South London. Now, this is where perhaps, you know, like why it's unexpected that I ended up voting the way that I did is that I went to a school where when I was, you know, 14, around 1991, um, a guy who I knew knew had gone to my school became leader of the country. And I knew that he was a working class lad who lived in Brixton. And, and so when the Tories went to that 1992 campaign, you know, the standard thing, which was that if you were working class, you voted Labour, and if you weren't, you voted Tory, mm-hmm. was challenged immediately because they, they had a campaign that said, what did the Tories do with a working class boy from Brixton, dot, 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 they made him prime minister. So so I know that that is the exception that proves the rule, and what you say generally is correct, but maybe this is why I ended up in the weird place I did, because I just had an unusual path through my early life. Now, it was interesting with John Major was that he he was not obviously charismatic, was he? I mean, he no he, but you know, he came to my my school to do a speech night um, because it had a grammar school pass, so it had some weird vestiges of this kind of thing. And 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 by all accounts, he he stood up and and basically slagged off his time at Rutledge. Said he didn't enjoy it. He got terrible grades, and the and and the head teacher at the time he must have thought he'd scored a real coup with the prime minister. Come in to do a speech night. I must have been thinking, all right, John, get back on on, on message, mate. <laughs> but one thing that did stand out from that night, and this was interesting, was um, a lot of the lefty teachers who had gone right. I'm going to I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to. They all met him and they charmed the pants off them. And <clears throat> you know, particularly with John, with what we found out, you know, in in subsequent <laughs> years, was that he was um he was of particular interest to the female teachers. They were all said that he was surprisingly charming and attractive and that he was over six foot and had a, a quite a big, he was quite a big built man, contrary to the image on spitting image yeah. of a tiny gray man. And, and at the 92 election, John Major did really well with female voters. Oh, well, that's fascinating actually. And, and you know, yeah. once with comprehensive, nobody. So maybe, uh, you know, we should, <laughs> I'm I'm a bit bitter now that Rutledge got uh, got got a prime minister and we didn't. Uh, I, I loved your your Radio Four show, Well Classy, which I think everybody should look up. And it, you're talking about your battles or resenting being mm. called middle class, and and you talk about the concept of class treachery um, mm. for many who grew up without money. I mean, I did love your line, by the way, and it stuck with me. Uh, uh, people who have gone from sort of the earth to Himalayan rock sort. Uh, you know, it's a brilliant line. But do you think that that's part of the thing is that in British culture, um, people, with the exception of John Major, know their mm. place too much and are kowtowing to the Jacob Rees-Mogg's and, and people like that. I see it slightly differently in that people like their place. I like, you know, it's weird. I don't, when I look at billionaires, wealthy people, people who went to boarding school, there's never been any part of me that actively wants their their life. I might, 
it might be nice to have a few more quid in the bank. But if if you ask me which of my life experiences I'd trade, I really I really have any that that I would trade overall for for that life. Um, and I think that it's it, it's you know there are compensations, aren't there? At every stage, I've, I've always felt the working class culture is warmer. I think in family life, there's a greater spirit towards disclosure in working class families. We tell each other everything. You know, if you look at the standard dinner table the things that get discussed from people's sex life to everything. And, you know, I, mean, I remember the first times when I was a kid going to my middle-class friends' houses and how uptight they were and and how silent everything was. I mean, this is one thing I've noticed when, you know, for example, I do work at places like the BBC, you go into these big open plan offices and just everyone is just padding around and no one's taking, no one's taking the mickey out of each other. No one's got funny nicknames for each other. And, and I just, you know, that, these i think the cultural class divides are as important as the economic ones to be honest right and and the cultural ones i would always say i'd prefer you know the background that i had you know economically i mean would it have been nice if there's no part of me that wants to go skiing i've got, I've got to be honest and and you know i mean even, even just earlier today i went into town where i live and um uh, you know, there was a coffee shop there and the sta- I had some work to do and the standard thing is you go in a coffee shop you get a latte and you do all that stuff and then I just really didn't feel like it. And then I saw a calf next door and I went in the calf and, and, you know, it's just, it's where, where are you more comfortable? I, I think I feel comfortable in a calf, but it also, I guess there's a nostalgia element that that smell of, you know, oil and, and fried foods and stuff. It reminds me of, um, it reminds me of being a kid. And I guess there must've been something about that life, which I like because I like being reminded of it. It's really interesting because uh, obviously it's the humorology podcast. It's about humor and where humor comes from and you're very much about that the banter for want of a better word and the humor comes more from working class things and I think that's true because I think you know great comedy comes out of you know all the port cities uh, mm. which would which were generally poor had much more you know you didn't get a lot of great comedians coming from you know middle Surrey you got Glasgow, well, you got Liverpool, or a thing. Do you think that's yeah? True I mean, or? if you if you if I stop and think about like some of the, the who I think are the best practitioners of stand up, just pure and applied stand up. You go Billy Connolly. I think Kevin Bridges is just a world class mm-hmm. ta- talent. You know, you think about the people that broke out at the beginning of the 2010s. You know, Sarah Millican, John Bishop, Mickey Flanagan. You know, Michael Mark, um, Michael McIntyre slightly slightly different like but the the cartoonish like element i mean i mean that is who he is but like there's a slightly cartoonish element to his middle classness that it needs to be to be funny so i i think when you're sort of playing to a mass audience there is something about people from a working class background i mean if you look in the states somebody like bill burr yeah you know people like that have always been eddie murphy people i i i I sort of respond more to that because i don't know it's a bit more earthy it's a bit more it's a bit more real. And and like, you know, you say about the banter element, I mean, that is mainly I'm taking the piss, you know, in almost everything that I do is I don't really have, I'm not trying to pedal, pedal a, a view that I think people should have. It's just, there'll be a subject. And I've noticed perhaps a little bit of chink in the armor of, of how people, of how people think, you know, and often for me, the sort of, virtuous middle-class left-wing types are tend to be my favorite hunting ground because it's just it's just 
funny you know it's just funny to me that often the same people that will talk about doing the right thing and and having a moral conscience will be the exact same ones that will kind of you, you know rent a, a flat near a near a school just to get their kid in there to avoid you know like there, there's just so many and i look I, everyone wants to do the best for their kids but i've always found it funny the sharp elbows of the middle classes and and i have over the last 10 years probably gone at them a bit much sometimes you know and 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 that's what's funny is like the self-loathing to me there's no doubt my life's become way more middle class but to me the comedy thing about that is the self-loathing element and the trying to hang on you know and and i guess even today defiantly putting my laptop down in a cafe and you know next to the workman and there's me with my my macbook pro thinking somehow i'm still a proper geezer but i'm just writing <laughs> jokes you know <laughs> wait well you, well, you talk about proper geezer uh, your new tour is called basic bloke mm. um tell us a little bit more about that and um and where is that the dichotomy of are you still a basic bloke even though you now have middle class um you are able to have a macbook pro yeah i mean i i mean i, I think with you know with the the show i obviously blokes generally you know in the slipstream of something like me too which is was a legitimate movement against some really bad people but what tended to happen then was that masculinity and maleness it all got pulled into the slipstream of one thing and and then eventually like male sort of became a pejorative for naff rubbish useless you know and and i sort of thought you know i think blokes are all right generally there are obviously the, the toxic men that need to be taken on but what you had was a lot of other blokes that were just a bit lazy and a bit rubbish you know at worst standing around just hearing our brand get absolutely bashed and and I think that, you know, we're often portrayed as being primitive and basic creatures, but I thought that I started to think that even some very simple behaviours had more interest in underbellies. Like, for example, you, you know, blokes generally don't put on suntan lotion as much as women, you know, have to be bullied into it almost. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, you could just sound on a simple level, that's because they're lazy. But then I started to think, well, why, why is that? And then I started, well, one of the reasons I don't like doing it in public is because I don't moisturise very often. I don't really check my body at all you know i'm not as in tune with my body as a woman would be so at the point where i put on suntan lotion in public i've got no real match fitness in terms of how you reach that bit on your lower back you know how you rub stuff in and so i just look like an idiot while i'm doing it and so i thought that's more interesting to me is that, that it's not just about bravado it's just that I just don't know how to do that stuff. And it's probably only twice a year that I'll be called upon to do it. So I'll sort of take my take my chances with skin cancer rather than, you know, the problem is, is, is if you try and do something like that, you look like a cat. You know when a cat has to lick that bit just underneath its chin? It's the only moment that a cat loses its sense of grace. There's <laughs> no so. dignity there, is there? There's no real dignity. And, and so I sort of thought that's, that's true, of, you know, of, of men. We just... We just don't really have any form when it comes to a self-care in a public setting. Well, we had Ahmed Jalili on the show and, and uh, he said that comedians are people who need the laughter of strangers to validate us. Mm. We're all mentally ill. You're about to go out on or you're going on tour. Is that something that you relate to? I mean, because it reminds me of the old Billy Crystal uh line of what he said about robin williams he needs those extra little hugs that you can only get from strangers mm. do you recognize that yes and no. i mean i'm not like um i don't have like the classic comedians um 
sort of sensibilities i'm quite sociable i like going out and doing things you know what i mean i like i've always like you know since i've been a comic i like getting up in the morning and you know a lot of comics they're quite you know they like going to bed late getting up late just just keeping themselves to themselves so i'm not sure that i'm you know i mean maybe it's to do with greatness as well you know if you to be a proper comic maybe you need that but i did notice uh weirdly during the first lockdown i didn't miss the live work and that sort of alarmed me and my wife oh, i think for her it's a great way of just getting some time apart but then in in the in the second one i i really like the the main one at the beginning of 2001 i did miss it 21 i think the reason i didn't miss it the first time around is because i've been touring a lot in the build-up and i was just exhausted so it kind of came you know a convenient time for me as much as a world pandemic can be convenient um and then i did a run at the edinburgh festival last year of my my last tour show which it was the best show I've ever done. I know comedians always said that, but coming out of COVID, we all had a lot of stuff to talk about, right? And that's one thing that works for humour is just just um, um, accessibility. Do people know the thing that of which you speak? That's why stuff about school works well, stuff about parents. It's simply because I know what he's talking about. So we'd all gone through COVID, whether you'd had the vaccination or hadn't. I had, despite appearances, a lot of people seem to presume that I hadn't. Um, <laughs> You know, you were talking about a known entity to a lot of people. And then by the time I did it at the Edinburgh Festival, I just loved doing the show. Like it was, it really worked so well. And I did it for 21 days or something. And then, and then after I finished, I just got a bit depressed. And I was trying to think, what is this? And I was like, oh, it's just, I really like doing that. I liked, my life made sense. I got up, there was a bit, you know, from waking up to about 3 p.m. where the day was my own. I potted about, did a few bits. And then, you know, I had an early evening show. Um, which meant that yeah, I could do the show. And then after I was I'd go and get a bit of dinner, basking in the afterglow of this show that I'd worked so hard on. And I missed it. I missed it a lot. And um, and I, I think that it is weird. I mean, a lot of comics will talk about it is like an addiction in a way is that the, was it, the lows get, the highs get lower and the lows get higher. So what you get from doing your job well versus what you get from doing it badly is becomes disproportionate. Um, but the thrill of doing new stuff that works, that doesn't change, I don't think. I mean, it's like you've invented a new sort of really cool weapon for yourself, you know, like a, a good weapon that doesn't hurt people, that fires fun bullets. And you just, you did that, you know, and you know that the old one is running out of bullets. So you always, you always need, and, and I think that, that that creative need in stand-up is what keeps me, you know, on my toes is that you've always got to be developing as, as an act, because I, I just think, you know, any stand-up you've ever seen that stood still, it, you know, that that is a sort of creative death in itself. Well, it would be for me anyway. It's interesting you talk about the, the, the stood still, because, I mean, we both, I mean, I I was obviously a lot earlier version of the comedy mm. store and all that uh, uh, than you were. But I, you know, occasionally I will see acts who are still doing pretty much the same act that they mm. were doing. And, and I always think, well, that must just be, you know, like a factory job at that point when, when you're doing that. You sound like you really always need to be doing something new to feel vital. Well, I mean, that it struck me even in the early days. So you remember the, the circuit in the noughties was, was you could still earn a very good living from it. And so there was venues like the Comedy Store, still, still is the Comedy Store, a great venue, but Jonglers also, which provided a lot of work. And the culture generally, mostly, was that people did the same 20 for a very long time. 
But even then, I, I just found that there was a there was a kind of a shelf life for everything I was saying. And and as much as, I, you know, it still worked, I, I, there started to come a point of d- diminishing returns. And so, you know, the 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 the, the acts of generation above me was, oh, well, you're, God, you're always turning stuff over you, you know. And then I would say that the acts younger than my generation turn stuff over even even quicker uh um so you know there is a danger of throwing the baby out with the bar for her, definitely you know because you never know for certain what you gotta ask yourself is 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 the new stuff if, if you're talking just about your 20 minute set is it definitely better than the old stuff and sometimes it's not sometimes you just want to have new stuff to say um but that was what in a way led me to talk about politics i suppose was that you know, I was doing a lot of club type work. I was gigging for the the troops, you know, overseas in Afghanistan. And, and that demanded very like, you know, meat and two veg type comedy. And I thought I'd like to do something that challenges me. And my wife sort of said, well, you you know, you voted conservative. That's weird for a comedian. Why don't you talk about that? And I was like, All right, I'll give that a go. And and it created like a, it created a difficulty element in the room because there were a lot of, not probably a lot of people in the room had voted conservative too, but the people that hadn't, immediately thought I was a bad person right <laughs> like as they often do and and you know so I had to then I didn't have to make them think I was a good person but I had to have jokes that were funny enough to make them laugh despite that now I, I love the fact that that challenge I also love your quote that voting conservative is a, a bit like buying a James Blunt album loads of people mm. have done it but weirdly you never meet them um, yeah so you <laughs> but you were actually setting yourself up and 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 great comedy mm. comes from and I remember Kim Kinney who used to run the comedy store I don't know if you mm. uh, I'm you aware of him yeah yeah and he you know a, a, a lot of people like Sean Locke and everything he advised all of us and one of the things he used to say is when people were starting out early in their career he did it with Jack D and think mm. I don't know who you are mm. and it was a very wise thing to say go away and work on who you are mm. and think and do you think that 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 through line about your politics gave you a real gave the audience and you a real signal of who you mm. are and where you're coming from uh first you know when it came to the comedy store they said to me they didn't know who i was but that was because they just literally didn't know who i was i, was, <laughs> I, I wasn't doing enough work so always working paul always working <laughs> uh, there is a tendency in comedy and a lot of male comics do this is they'll just tell you what they think about the world right but you're only giving away dribs and drabs really of who you are there you know they've all they've got to kind of work it out you you get credit for being oh they got a that was a smart take or something, but they don't necessarily know who you are. Whereas I guess if you're even the act of willing to be unpopular tells them something uh, about you, you know, the honesty of that, not in these days, but originally you are inviting them into a confidence and stuff. And then, you know, having taken that risk, I think then I probably got more confident in taking on difficult things. So, you know, I'm never going to be one of these comedians that's going to sort of depress the shit out of everybody with like a like a tragic five-minute story. But I certainly wasn't afraid to talk about the bad things that had happened to me, you know, however briefly or or if I if I had something funny to to to, to say about them. And and just bit by bit, yeah, the, the sort of complicated balance of who you really are comes out. And for me, that balance is is on the one hand, you know, having sort of centre-right politics, some small-C conservative impulses, um, also being what most, you know, what certainly in old-fashioned sense would have been seen as liberal and 
that no longer being seen as liberal, which I think a lot of people are in that boat, but also finding it funny that I'm this guy too. Like I can see that, that I have certain old fashioned ways of thinking about things that I, I surprise myself sometimes. Like, you know, like I used to do a bit on men, you know, couples having double barreled names, you know, I just, the moment, whenever a guy tells me that they've gone double barreled, I just, I just feel like it, what makes me laugh is when he says, no, we just, when he tries to act like he's okay with it, I'll go, <laughs> come on, mate, come on. There must be a part of it. I say, all right, you may have accepted the decision, but I'm going to bet that this wasn't your idea. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, 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 I get that. And I, I, I was interested when you were talking about the finding yourself funny and being able to take the piss out of yourself, because I think that's a, a very large part of your uh, charm and mm. charisma in comedy is the fact that there's a knowingness about the fact that I know that you're, what you're mm. thinking about this and do you how important do you have that because obviously it's not just comedians who listen to this podcast it's people in business and it's it's about helping people improve do you think it's important to to actually laugh at yourself to find yourself funny in some cases what you're saying it's not just laughing at yourself it's acknowledging the funny thought about you that they may have had you know so a lot of comics use that device and, it, and it's, it's a legitimate comedic device of, of walking out and addressing what people's first thought about you might be yeah. because what that does is is it it clears the elephant in the room and it also shows them that you're good at it you know you know what you're doing I mean the one I've used for a while because I generally dress in jeans and a polo shirt for a while I, I've sort of go out of the line and say um 
I reassured I'm, I'm a comic and then say, because I think some of you just thought an electrician had wandered on stage accidentally, because that's what it looks like, really. I mean, I just, I'd look like an electrician for some reason or, <laughs> or the kind of bloke that, you know, you saw, you know, when it all kicked off at Wembley in the Euro final, I look oh, like the kind God. of bloke, the kind of bloke there. So, so you, what I'm sort of saying is I know that some of you in the room will think I'm a bit of a gammon in inverted commas, or, you know, I look like a hooligan or, or you know, a lot of di- different things that aren't necessarily positive, but I've second guessed you. I've acknowledged them, and in the act of acknowledging them, I'm I'm also confirming that I'm not in a way. I'm not lumping an electrician in with in with blokes that have barge their way into a final and are being hooligans, you know. <laughs> but but it's very interesting from a psychological perspective that uh, we are all making decisions about everybody constantly. You know, they they, mm. they say that it takes between two and three seconds for somebody to make an impression. So actually, that's a very useful thing for anyone who has to get up, whether that's a wedding speech or a business yeah. speech or everything, to acknowledge something in the room about mm. themselves or uh, uh, about the situation. And then that kind of takes control of it, doesn't it? Yeah, it can do. I mean, contextually, though, those are... It's like, I mean, you could do with a best man speech. I mean, one of the things, if you're a best man, I would always think that that not everyone in the room knows who you are. There's probably a, a likelihood that a solid chunk of people will know who you are. So you could deal with that then. You know, if you're in business, uh, again, you have to slightly temper the message because uh, if you sort of walk on and do a business speech and go, I know what you're thinking, you know, the, ba- the bastard love child of Stephen Hawkins and, you know, something like, <laughs> like that, you know, you, again, it's... um. It's it's so it's so subtle. I mean, I, I'd imagine that the the difference between doing a business talk or you know or, or addressing employees and stuff is similar to how I have to change it for when I'm going on a, a show like Question Time or something, where I know that a naked attempt to get a big laugh will just just annoy people, frankly, because they go, well, one, there's a lot of people that not unreasonably are going, why is there a comedian on Question Time? Fair question. It's not for me to answer. Um, secondly, you you know it they're taking this this a serious thing and they want to take it seriously so in those situations i tend to sort of like offer humor a nod towards the idea of humor can be just as it um as effective you know like something that doesn't have an obvious uh rim shot punchline but is is just dropped dropped in and then people can almost congratulate themselves for for realizing you know what what you've what you've said but it also takes the pressure off the joke as well like what you would as you know what you would normally have as a punchline is the funniest word will come at the end of the sentence right because there's the punctuation point of a joke whereas i sometimes think if if it's a more formal setting i'll I'll sandwich the joke within something else to give myself a bit of leeway whereby you know you can kind of then then if it doesn't work they're sort of going did he do a joke there or was that just it does and it doesn't matter because if as long as you keep your own internal settings uh okay it's amazing how you know it's, it's like when you do new material if you don't believe too much that it's definitely going to work if something bombs if you remain calm and just go and do the next thing and it doesn't appear to have sort of bothered you especially uh then then the audience can feel calm too that's really interesting because i say to people on stage if you want anyone to go into any state you have to go into that state yeah 100 percent. yeah and uh, and uh I was thinking about when you were talking about that, you were a teacher uh, Mm. at a secondary school 
that was all about state management, wasn't it? About you had to manage the state and uh, in your mm, book. Where how, did I go right? <laughs> where did I go right? I was, yeah, I was, I knew the word right was in there. And I was just trying you to. You probably, from your, from your point, you probably think, where did he go wrong? You know, right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's the inference. <laughs> Not at all. Um, no, yeah. it's a great book. Where did I go right? But also, that whole thing about being a teacher is about having the right attitude so mm. people don't mess with you. And is that not mm. similar to the whole comedy thing of what well, you've got to walk on stage with an attitude and then people yeah. will behave? Firstly, as a teacher, I would always, I mean, I, I, I don't dress very well in life and it's a constant source of frustration for my wife. But as a teacher, I did make sure that I had a, had a shirt, a suit and tie, you know, every time because teenagers despite i mean again this is one of these kind of liberal things now where people go, you know teenagers are just as clear and again no they, look, there's great things about teenagers but they are very superficial basic creatures if you go in looking smart they will respond very well to superficial signals right so if you look the part the, that's one thing and then i would just go in um as though you know like i just expected to be listened to and you know if they were chatty or disruptive I wouldn't get annoyed. I would just, you know, I had a couple of facial expressions that would just be like, I cannot believe that you're delaying these amazing things that I have to say. <laughs> like, and, and then what would happen is if you could nail that, the kids would often go, shut up, because they would see, you know, this person that, that and, and if you could get away with that, don't get me wrong, there were some classes where you, you really had, you know, it was just firefighting. But um, yeah, I, I, I just used to sort of set up some very clear things at the beginning of the lesson. You know, one of them was that they had to call me either Sir or Mr. Norcott, you know. So I gave them a choice, but the choice was still between two very formal things. But that wasn't my, you know, maybe that was the first time I realised I was was a bit old-fashioned or certainly conservative with a small C. But to me, it was like classic conservatism, which is just pragmatism, is that that's what will work. That's what they need. That's not necessarily how I want to act. I would rather just be relaxed and wearing jeans and a t-shirt but that's what i need to succeed in this environment that's really interesting because you, but you said it in as teenagers i i do a lot of training in business and and people mm. and i'm always saying the same thing to people in business you know you you think you work for a trendy company and mm. you, you 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 can wear a tall t-shirt well when you're going to pitch to somebody outside you've got mm. to remember that they are judging you on some level and whether that's a level of respect like you're talking mm. about, it doesn't really make any difference. So it's easier to to actually hold them, first of all, with the visual. Or just don't scare the horses. I mean, that's the point is if you it's like comedy, any decision that you make with teaching or comedy to upset convention, if it's done with an idea in mind, like a real clear plan of why you're doing it, or like you might be, or you might have the most amazing pitch in the world. Like you want to set, you want to wrong foot them perhaps by looking like you look, or you've got jokes about how you look. That's great. But it can't just be like, oh, I can't, you know, because I can't be asked to wear a suit. It's got to be like, there's a specific, you know, there's a specific reason. You know, you might be a music teacher and think if I wore a suit, you know, they might think I was a bit uptight and therefore not, you know, necessarily a great music teacher. You know, you, being a drama teacher, being a PE teacher, all these things are, they're all different choices so you can you know there, i remember there was a comedian a very good comic called danny boy and he came on and i did a gig with him in singapore and i was sort of the support act but when he came on he faced the other way for a good two minutes 
And but he knew what he wanted to get out of that. It was a power play and a very high status move. Um, but he had the jokes. He had the jokes about facing the wrong way. You know, but if you just face the wrong way because you think it'd be a cool thing and what what you know to see what will happen you know it's, it's 99 percent of the time it's going to come unstuck well i think you're right you're what you're saying is you have to be very very skilled to do it i uh mm. when alan davis first started doing comes to always to work with him all the time and he used to come on shambolic looking at you know the set and the thing and mm. the thing and the the audience used to visibly get nervous because yeah. it was like, oh, you know what it's like at the store. Oh, God, he's going to be. And then he would do that for about 90 seconds and go up mm. to the mic and go, oh, don't go thinking I'm shit. This is my job. I'm just doing when you turn up for your job, you don't sit straight down and and, and start uh, doing. Yeah, that. yeah. And so, you know, and then he'd have a gag for that and a gag for that. Well, it's it just tension. Still... Yeah, there's a deliberate thing there. You're creating the tension of of low expectations. Uh, which you can only um, e- exceed, you know, and there's something, you know, in talking about comedy from a more conservative angle, the the thing that you can exceed is certainly when you're in Edinburgh and there's very like bourgeois type left-wing audiences, the low expectation is that they might think that you're a horrible or stupid person. And it's quite a handy one that, because if you, if you demonstrate to them that you're not thick or that you're, that you're not unkind. I've often thought, you know, with left wing, you know, this argument about left wing and right wing comedy, I think it's harder to be a left wing comic because you're sort of adopting a high moral stance from the beginning. And that's not necessarily a great place to do comedy from is to say, I'm, I'm a fantastic person who thinks all the right things. Whereas if you just think about, you know, if you're thinking of a sitcom character, you know, I'm a flawed person who sometimes thinks the wrong things is a much funnier, you know, place to come from. And, 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 you know, admitting to thinking those things or, or to, to kind of like sort of balmy things that run through your mind is, is, is again, like you say, it's about, it's about what's your intention. And, you know, if you, if you just, so for example, if you just went on to shock people, that won't work in the long run because it's annoying when someone says, well, prepare for my truth or can you handle this? Or I bet you weren't expecting that. People going, well, we'll be the judge of that. But but if you go on with, with the idea of you want to share some complicated ideas that are morally ambiguous with jokes, that that's a different that's a different starting point. I I think it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I say all this, I'm making it sound very highfalutin. I mean, if you saw my club sets at the weekend, I was doing knob <laughs> jokes. You'd think, well, where does all this theory feed into that, Jeff? Well, well do you know what I? It some. Sometimes you have to have a bit of both, don't you? You, you really got do. To, you know, you're, and it's horses for courses, isn't it? Well, if you're mm. if you're doing a set in a club, you you know you can't do it about philosophical matters to do with conservatism. You've got to mm. have a knob joke in there to get it there. Talking about clubs, you you talked about a couple of people, but what makes you laugh? I think at the moment on things like TikTok, there's so many funny people. It's actually scary, like how good the just generally people outside of what's perceived to be the industry are observing things and making funny sketches. I think that the skill set to be a stand-up, as you all know, is quite it's quite rare. It doesn't matter how many people start it. It seems like there's still only a certain amount that get good at it. But the the thing of just noticing like little intricacies and inconsistencies in life and representing them in small sketch formats i think there's some insanely funny stuff on 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 tiktok you know there was a guy the other day that i saw a a sketch and he just said he just said when you're lying in bed and you can't tell 
whether or not the dressing gown hanging on your uh, the back of your door is your dressing gown or a 15th century ghost. Now, it was such a specific observation, and he means in the dark, but because I'd once been in a hotel and woke up and saw my suit hanging up on the thing and, and it was in that half-sleep state, I just thought, yeah, you, you know, like sometimes when you're in a half-sleep state and it's dark and you're maybe in a slightly negative frame of mind and you think the things that you're and, – and he just did a very good impression of a scared person trying to sort of hide in their bed. And he just, I just thought, God, that's such a simple – but it, it wouldn't work in stand-up, you know, but in, in the realms of a, of a short clip where you can demonstrate it – you know, it's really funny. And there are, you know, there's another guy on there that you know, he he uses higher production values, but he's just done this brilliant satire of the Kardashians, which is a, which is an obvious, an obvious target. Right. But he he sort of picked up on certain linguistic tropes. The fact that they've always got like a, a weird drink with them. So he'll often have a glass that would just have like a an exotic flower coming out of it's not even really a drink but he's just picked up on the fact that they always seem to be promoting an idea that there's something new and fangled that you should be drinking so it's might be unfashionable with comics to say it but yeah social media i think is, is where i get my laughs now that's amazing do you think that you know we touched on it about political leaders but do you think you can be a great communicator generally without understanding humor it's hard really i mean unless the the raw, dry content you had was so earth shattering that it didn't need humor. You know, I mean, I even Stephen Hawkins used to throw in the odd gag, didn't he? You know, you're talking about the inception of the universe and the Big Bang. He would he would throw in the odd wry aside. Um, so no, I think that it, it, I never thought I never thought like a speech suffered from being too funny. Uh, I definitely thought that loads of speeches suffered from being too serious, I guess is the best way of putting it. So if you were going to fear on one, I mean, obviously, you know, there's attempt, we're talking about humor if it's successful now. Right. Um, But, you know, being serious can be successful, but it can also bore the crap out of you, you know? So, so yeah, I think that if you look at somebody like Theresa May, you know, she suffered by not being able to loosen at all. Rishi Sunak as well will, will suffer from that problem. Starmer will, will suffer. I mean, look how much cut through Boris Johnson got just because he was sort of shambolic and a bit funny. You know, Blair Blair could be not to the same degree as Johnson, but Blair could be humorous. Um, but if you look at the, all the, the recent prime ministers that have um, struggled to sort of strike up a rapport with the British public, it's been a lack of humour in a way. You say that we we had um, William Hague on the podcast. Well, who, he's great. Yeah, he's funny. He's he's genuinely very funny. And uh, you know, they used to say Alistair Campbell used to say and said on here that they feared him mm. at, at, at at Prime Minister's questions because he could do a zinger that would not only make the Conservatives laugh, but the whole Labour benches laugh as well. And that's yeah. a real talent. But um, William Hague said. Um, that Margaret Thatcher was deeply unfunny and didn't mm. get it. You know the uh, story of um, uh, her saying, is Monty Python one of us? Because they mm. tried to get her to do a line that was Python-esque and say, Prime mm. Minister, it will work. And when it worked, it said, is he one of us? You know, But she really didn't actually understand the rhythm of humor and yet 
she was adored, was she not? I suppose that's like goes back to that point about it, you better have the most earth shattering. Everything else needs to be in place then, you know, in terms of your image, you know, the Iron Lady, the gravitas, the way that she spoke, her, her uncomfortable, you know, all the other stuff was in place. It's a bit like, you know, when people talk about doing dark humour, I always think that dark humour just needs to be funnier. You know, that that's the point about it. So if you're going to be as serious as Thatcher was, you've got to go full Iron Lady, right? <laughs> you know, you can, there can be no, you know, and in a way that is the funny thing is that someone has such utter, I mean, she just had such utter conviction. It was, it's, it's almost striking in itself that you go, I don't think you doubt any of this. You know, some politicians where there's nuance, you know, someone like Ken Clark couldn't be more different from her and people, public tend to like Ken Clark. He's one of those few politicians which cuts across with both sides. And that's almost exclusively to do with humour, you know, like Dennis Skinner, real hard left type guy, beast of Bolsover, but funny, right? You know, he's got running jokes and all those sorts of things. So I guess, yeah, some people do do break that mode. I mean, it'll all depend on, I guess, and this might sound a bit trite to say it, but the subject matter um, uh, and the context and it's a constant balance out isn't it? it's a trade-off between how serious or or you know um kind of portentous or or ominous is what I, what i have to communicate here versus how much humor can i afford to have you know i mean i've done and you know unfortunately i've done quite a few eulogies um because people once you're a comic they tend to ask you to do them and i've i've learned in a way that you do need to have a couple of nods towards humor but they need to be tiny nods, tiny nods. And, and you know, the most you're going to get is a kind of, you know, a wry noise of acknowledgement, you know. I'm interested in that because mm. the only time I've seen it done, um, which I think was brilliantly, was when John Cleese did the eulogy for Graham Chapman, where mm. he took everybody down one road and then mm. sprung it back. Well, that was a, I mean, I guess that was a comedy industry funeral and there were comedians there. So that was much closer to being um, a, a performance than anything that we would understand no, that's uh, true. As, as a funeral. I, I think the one that, that really stands out most to me was there's a, there's a moment in the, you know, that, that incredible speech by John Hannah's character in Four Weddings and a Funeral yeah. when his partner has died and um, stop he, the clocks. He, yeah, stop that. So he does. He eventually does the poem, but before that, he does a kind of eulogy, and he talks about the, 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 the he. I can't remember what it is. He says something about the awful experimental sandwiches he would make, or something like that. And it cuts to this actress. I don't know who she is, but she does this sort of nod and a wry smile, and th- and that was enough. That was exactly the right amount of humour for that situation, which was not very much at all. But you know, there, there are you know, it, it's so contextual with 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 um eulogies i mean I, like i say i've done them at all ages sadly but the you know old the older people are the more you can mention stuff you know the more tragic it is the less you can mention stuff it's almost like there's a there's a sliding scale and and um you just got to you know again again with 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 weddings you know i did um i did i was lucky enough to be the celebrant for my stepsister's wedding and that was a great thing i've never done that before it was, it was really uh, I'm surprised that more comedians don't do it, by the way, as a corporate offshoot, because c- celebrity comedian does your wedding is, you know, let's talk business, Paul, once we finish. But yeah. <laughs> um, but to try and be too funny in that situation, like don't get me wrong, I was able to do a couple of jokes, but to try and be too funny, there's that moment where you go, it's not about you, mate. <laughs> you know, so that that is another factor as well, is that humour, sometimes you can put yourself at the centre of something, but you've got to be careful about the degree to which, you should be at that centre. 
Yeah, brilliant. We've reached the part of the show, Jeff, which we like to call quick fire questions. Quick fire questions. Who is the funniest business person that you've met? So not necessarily a comedian. Um, I don't know if he, this was deliberate, but there's a guy that I worked with when I worked in advertising. He was an old East End Barra boy that ended up working on the kind of small small industry side of thing with ITV. So his deals were often, instead of money, it was like con- contra deals. It was hilarious. He used to get like 30,000 pairs of jeans, you know, or six <laughs> new photocopiers and stuff. And he was just a funny, just a funny guy. I had a funny way of talking. And, you know, he'd, he'd pause it. He just, he just used to instinctively make me laugh. And he just had a way of saying it where I was like, I never knew if he was being deliberately funny. And he'd be like, I've got six brand new photocopiers out of them. You know, and he, and it was funny because I was working for ITV advertising at the time. A lot of them were talking about these multi-million pound dollar deals. So yeah, maybe there's a sitcom in him. But um, yeah, in business, that would definitely be the funniest guy. Oh, brilliant. What book makes you laugh, Jeff? Um, so I, I don't know as, as a guy who used to be an English teacher I don't read enough but when I was younger I remember Martin Amos's books they, it was again it wasn't like the laughter the, the humour that used to build throughout the books and then he had this knack for naming characters and and so there's there's the the, the book Money which is about a guy trying to get a film yeah. commissioned in, in the late 70s I think um, yeah. he has these characters in it they're just so fun. Like there's a guy who's kind of, I guess, like a Chuck Norris type, I don't know, Burt Reynolds type character who's called um uh Lawn Guyland. And I always just thought it's so funny because immediately that's that's not like a real name, but it feels like a real name. And then he had this character, this kind of actress who'd become an earth mother called Kadusa Massey, and she basically just wanted to, you know, one of these highly intellectual women that wants to sort of breastfeed the entire world at the same time. <laughs> And, 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 you know, at the time I was reading that, you know, it was a time that Madonna was adopting half of Africa and stuff. And so he seems so ahead of the game. And, and, and in, in the book Money, there's a description that, of him losing a tennis match, which I think that there's something about losing at tennis, which is so humiliating and protracted and exhausting. And I, I think that he just captures every single aspect of it. Oh, no, it is a tremendous book. And actually, you're the first person mm. who's chosen that book, but it's a brilliant choice. I absolutely love it. I also love Martin Amis came up with um, one of my favourite uh, sort of little quotes. And he says, I keep on working because I have tramp angst. He goes, I, yeah, yeah. I, I see I myself that, yeah. yeah, under it. Do you have that same thing as well, where you visualise that if this doesn't go right, and then the, the, I'll tumble into that. And next thing you know, I'll be under Waterloo Bridge begging for the pennies. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, it's interesting because I always thought that that was more of a working class impulse. You know, like if you've, you know, there's that old phrase about once you leave the council estate, you never stop running, right? Um, you never stop running from poverty. I also had, you know, another guy in business that was a very funny man and, and you know, still works in comedy, Jeff Whiting, who you'll probably be aware of as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, promoter and an MC, you know, and he has a real place within the comedy industry but he he had this phrase you know he said comedy's like pushing a car up a hill you know he goes you can get really far up that hill but if you take your hand off that car for one second like the velocity of the reverse and it's, it's annoying because that is what comedy's like um so yeah no i absolutely tramp angst and and stuff but maybe with martin amos the thing that substituted for poverty was the fact that his dad was kingsley amos <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but he still had that that psyche that, that, that it yeah no on. i am i have tramp angst as well yeah what film makes you laugh 
Um, well, I guess like all people, it changes over time. But yeah, God, I mean, I suppose, you know, I don't know. I can remember at the time, you know, I can say that when Dumb and Dumber first came out, I mean, I watched that. Uh, I watched that on a loop a lot, you know, that formative and, and, and obviously the spoof films of of the kind of late 70s as well. Because what I loved about those spoof, spoof films was when you, you saw grown up actors and I just loved the fact that they were so deadpan and they were taking it so seriously. You know, and you get people like Leslie Nielsen and those guys that you just sense such a warmth, I guess. And then going on from that. People like Will Ferrell, I think, really carried that forward yeah. where you just think you must be the best bloke in the world because you're willing to be so silly um, for the sake of entertaining other people. Like there's things there's things in the film, the other guys with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, that's so ridiculously funny. Like in one of the, the, the running jokes in it is that he's got this stunning wife who's literally a 10 out of 10, I mean, 10 out of 10. And, um, and he's just a bit... He sort of apologises to Mark Wahlberg about his wife, her behaviour, how she looks. And, and Mark Wahlberg's absolutely astonished by this. And then it also transpires that in a former life, he was a pimp as well, uh, called Gator, which is short for alligator. It, it's just it's just so it's just so funny in the way that it's executed. And, and it's the, you know, commit to the bit. That's the thing. And you go... Obviously, you got paid loads of money for that and became famous. But whenever anybody does deadpan, I always think that they're sort of making a sacrifice for everybody else's benefit. Yeah, and that, but isn't that in comedy? You have to really go for it, especially on mm. film. You have to sort of like believe that you are it for it to become mm. funnier. If you know yeah, I mean. well, they always say that about good comedies. You know, when whenever they say about a comedy, uh, always oh, we, we had great fun on set and there was loads of improv and. That those aren't necessarily the best ones. The ones that you want are the ones that had a great script. And I know that with Judd Apatow films, often they'll think of lines in the moment and stuff. So there's a different kind of improv. But um, but yeah, you don't necessarily want them to have had a complete laugh. You know, you want them to execute, you know, yeah. execute the script and the story as presented and, and the humour tends to come afterwards. I want to take a very quick shift to uh, the other side. Um I don't know. You're going to be one of the most interesting people I think I've asked this question of because I, I, I wonder if you have limits. But what's not funny? As you'd probably expect, I don't have limits in terms of subject matter. You know, I, I'm and I agree. I, I see that not everybody has to think this way, but I, I think that comedy has uh, it's a risk, isn't it? To make a joke. It's a social risk. So all comedy is predicated around risk at some degree, the greater the risk the greater potential return. And I think that you can, you can get told off, you know, like if you made a joke and people didn't like it and it made them feel bad, it's okay for people to be angry about that and to share that with you. What I think's changed recently is what people think that the consequences of that should be, you know, and in some cases they think it should be, you know, being boycotted, losing commercial sponsors or just never being seen in public again. So, so I think, I, I don't think that there are, you know, I, I literally don't think that there are any subjects that are beyond comedic treatment, you know, because I think that it doesn't sound like an art form, really, if you start saying you can't, like any sentence that starts with you can't. You think, is this an art form? Even, even when people talk about punching up and punching down, you go, well, you can only punch in one direction. But actually, if you know why you're punching down and if you've got a way of pulling it back round to punching up, there's all sorts of, or if you know that in the process of punching down, the real joke is that you seem like an awful human being. There's always, you know, there's always a way to do something. So no, the, just, the short answer is 
eventually the short answer is no, I don't think there are any limits. I just thought that the whole thing about cancellations and, mm. and people being cancelled is a really strange way because who's deciding what uh, yeah. this? And that's always what makes me uncomfortable because we're going back to 1950s um, Britain. Well, yeah, that's been the irony recently is how many people don't realise, for those of us that can remember, how much like Mary Whitehouse they sound. That's the funny thing is they think they're at the cool, trendy, cutting edge of society. You're going, but, yeah, but telling people what not to say and that it's too rude or too too provocative i mean that was literally what the conservative that's what the right wing used to say they used to be the preserve of the conservative so that that's been an interesting thing culturally during the course of doing comedy is to watch people essentially change places on that spectrum yeah it's fascinating what word makes you laugh so, I mean, I, I, there's a group of words that I don't really think that there's a word for, but that sound more impressive than they are. So words like espadrille, uh, if you think about how that sounds versus what it is, or gazebo, you know, mezzanine, <laughs> all these words are like way grander than the thing that they describe. So I, 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 I want to invent a word that describes words that are, um, you know, uh, uh, don't, uh, don't really live up to their billing. Lazebo. Placebo. No, placebo is the new word. Oh, placebo. Yeah, that could work. Yeah, yeah. They don't really perform yeah. a function. But but yeah, I've always thought that that was funny when you hear a word. Oh, well, what does that mean? And another one as well just doesn't even sound like what it is. Sound like bucolic. And you go, it's so close to bubonic. And that <laughs> yes. was a plague. Whereas bucolic means beautiful countryside or something. I'm just, yeah. I don't buy it. <laughs> I love that. Mm. I love that. Any sound that makes you laugh? I mean, well, look, I'm a, I'm a boy at heart. <laughs> but, I, I mean, actually, do you know what? Do you know what sound? You know, like the old 1970s type carry on laughing things. Like if a guy would see an attractive woman and you'd hear a boing or a all those childish, ridiculous sort of postcard sexuality humour sounds from they used to get from Ealing comedies. Those make me laugh. Oh, brilliant. Um, penultimate question. Would you rather be considered clever or funny uh funny because whatever intelligence i did have i know that it'd be easier to get it across for me with humor if i was clever without funny you know i just i don't know how I'd, you'd get an audience for getting an audience just for being clever is really bloody hard <laughs> you've yeah. got to be so clever whereas getting an audience for being funny you know you could be pretty funny and you can get a bit of an audience you know brilliant and finally, Jeff, desert island gags. You can only take yeah. one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? Well, it would just be for sort of sentimental reasons. My mum, how this all started was my mum used to take me and my sister to Harrods once a year, you know, to show us how the other half lived and, and we could have get one toy, you know, within a certain price range. You know, just basically it was her way of saying, you're, you're good enough, you know, your money's as good as theirs. And I, I had a book called The Ha Ha Bonk, joke book and the joke was something like what goes ha ha bonk a man laughing his head off now not the greatest joke in the world but i did tell it uh on stage at a holiday camp and it got one of my first laughs so so that one nostalgia yes brilliant jeff you've been a fantastic guest you've made us laugh you made us think uh thank you so much for being a brilliant guest on the humorology podcast and listen, I hope that your listeners, I uh, hope to see as many of them as possible on the Basic Bloke Tour.
which is all around the country from February, uh, the on sale from the beginning of February, and then it starts in autumn. We're going to all sorts of places, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back out there. Go and see Jeff, basic bloke, brilliant bloke. Thanks a lot, mate. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros, produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.